Tuesday, April 15th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Fool.com, Taylor Muckerman. It's industry week. Are you excited? I am. My first mono e mano Market <laughs> Foolery. Let's do this. Um, we're talking energy today. And yesterday when I was talking with David Hansen about financial services and banking, I gave him my moronic I shouldn't say moronic my my largely ignorant view of the industry separating it into three buckets it's one I know very little about <laughs> as well compared to those guys well but for the energy industry I how many buckets are there I, I can't imagine there's a way to easily separate all that how do you view for someone who is just coming into this because and I said this yesterday Ron gross is the one who said anyone? who has a balanced portfolio, a diversified portfolio, Mm -hmm. they should have some energy exposure in there. So if you're someone who's looking at your portfolio saying, well, I I don't really have any energy, first, what is the way to to look at the energy industry writ large? Obviously, there's big oil companies. Yeah, yeah, the ones you know that you get your gas from at the pump, Yeah, like an Exxon or a Shell. What else? Well, so you can basically lump these in. You could break it down any myriad different ways, but I look at integrated oils like the Exxon and the Chevrons and, and Royal Dutch Shells, which they do everything. They've got the Upstream, which is another segment. Those are the exploration and production companies that are going out, actively drilling and producing the oil. Then they pass that off to the Midstream, which is the pipeline companies and the gathering and processing, uh, which go ahead and separate out some natural gas liquids like propane and butane from natural gas, or just transport natural gas and oil through pipelines, or now rail is becoming a big, a big issue in the United States because pipelines can't keep up with the oil and natural gas boom. Then you talk about the downstream, like a Phillips 66, which refines the oil and natural gas into your gasolines and your petrochemical feedstocks. And then you talk about um, utilities. Uh, you have regulated and non-regulated utilities. So those are you can break that down two different ways. Um, that's one industry that I kind of shy away from a little bit just because they are so complicated. You're talking about tens, hundreds of subsidiaries built into these utilities that uh, you really have to understand. I mean, any one of these could be uh, likened to Enron based on the, the, the web that they create, not necessarily with the, the dangers anymore because accounting standards have been more strict, but that's the kind of web you're looking at when you're looking at a lot of these bulk utilities. And then equipment and services companies that go out there and help the upstream companies do the drilling like a Halliburton, um, which is probably one of the bigger names in the business. People recognize that for for all the wrong reasons, but they're a company that um, is, is irreplaceable in the energy, energy industry. Where do solar energy and other alternative energies fit into this? Are they off to the side in sort of a small niche? Because it seems like certainly from the standpoint of attention in the stock market, mm-hmm. solar stocks over the last couple of years, Solar City among them, right. really seem to get the lion's share of the attention. Is that just because they're the, the sexy industry within the industry? Or is it because there aren't really any publicly traded wind power companies, that sort of thing. Yeah, with wind, you're really not going to find anybody you can buy in for pure wind play. Uh, You can buy into the turbine manufacturers like a Siemens or a GE, um, or utilities like uh, Berkshire owns a couple utilities that are big into wind power, and Exelon moving away from nuclear. But uh, when you talk about solar, the new industry, uh, you had a few years back um, some government uh, subsidized companies fail, Solyndra, and then uh, the Chinese uh, solar panel manufacturers dumping 
cheap solar panels in the United States. So that created some news. So I think that they built, they came onto the scene for all the wrong reasons. But now I think a solar city or a sun power or a first solar are companies that are kind of carrying the torch on a positive note from from the what we've seen over the past few years. Uh, solar City, a very unique model pioneered by Elon Musk and his two cousins. Uh, he kind of gave them the ownership of the company. He's on the board and he's the chairman. Uh, so that's a high-profile name. And then SunPower is a more integrated, so if you could liken them to the Exxon and Chevron of the solar world. And then First Solar creates the panels. And because solar panels have dropped about 80% uh, price-wise over the last few years, uh, becoming much more efficient and cost competitive with coal and natural gas. So uh, it's no longer just sexy. It's a viable investment opportunity. So for someone who's just starting out, obviously you can look at ExxonMobil and say, mm-hmm. well, gosh, given how big they are, they're not going to go anywhere. Right. That's probably as safe uh, a play as you can make. But it also seems like it's because it's so big that you're not necessarily going to get some sort of significant return. For someone who's looking at energy saying, I don't really have anything Mm -hmm. in my portfolio that's energy, I don't want to buy the biggest energy company in the world. By the same token, I'm not looking to go with something riskier, sort of high flyer. What's sort of in that large middle swath? What's an area that people should consider looking at that they can – keeping in mind that we always – I shouldn't say we always. I'll just use myself as an example. Mm-hmm. I always do better with investments, and I think a lot of people do, the more they understand them. Sure. Yeah, so if you want to understand energy, maybe not invest in ExxonMobil or Chevron or, or BP, but those are great places to go for as resources. Their presentations and their their news portions of their website are just filled with uh, a wealth of information. And because they do everything from the top to the to the bottom of energy, um, I could, you can look at their projections that they hold out up to 30 years. You can look at all the research reports that they're publishing. And you can kind of get a better idea of, of maybe an energy subsector that you understand. Uh, one area that I think that investors could really look at is the equipment and, and services companies because um, – they don't have the production and exploration risk, and they're they're the beneficiary of the capital expenditures of these companies. So you have you have a leading indicator. Whereas if Exxon and Chevron talk about pulling back on spending, like they have been uh, for 2014. You can maybe say, hey, exploration or energy and services companies might not make as much uh, in the next couple of years as they could, so you can maybe shelf them for a little bit. But I think they're great long-term investments um, because of the fact that the United States has got an energy boom going on right now due to shale. I've got some statistics on the shale potential around the world, and we're really the only country that has started to develop shale oil and uh, so and natural gas. So we are number two in potential shale oil reserves and number four globally on shale shale gas. And so we're the only country really developing this. And then you look at Russia is one in shale oil, nine in shale gas. But the two countries to highlight are Canada or excuse me, China and Argentina. They are three and four in shale oil and one and two in shale gas. And those countries are just now starting to get on board. And they have national oil companies that they like to drill and produce this oil. So you're not going to see a lot of activity from domestic drillers, but you're going to see Halliburton and Schlumberger going down there and providing their expertise that they've built up in the United States. So Halliburton was the first one to frack in Argentina. Rumors have it that they're the first one to frack in China, but Schlumberger has a better international presence. So either one of those two companies, I think, would be would be great for investors to at least take a look at without having to incur that risk of exploration and production. But if you want that high risk, high reward, 
I would stick domestically with an EOG or a Devon um, because those companies have proven themselves out. They've got great resource bases, and the management has shown that they're flexible in the direction that they're able to take um, because it is a very fluid market. Matty Argusinger mentioned Devon on the radio show last week as the stock that he had on his radar. Mm-hmm. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but it does seem like we are now on maybe year three or so. Mm-hmm maybe year four, of one of the narratives in the energy space being about natural gas prices being low. Everyone's trying to figure out when are they going to go up and therefore when are people going to be able to make exponentially more money off of the prices. Yeah, we've been hoping for that for a few years now. what, What do you see when you look at natural gas in the United States? Well, it's obviously plentiful. We're one of the top producers, if not the top producer in the at least Western Hemisphere, competing with Russia and Qatar, but um, and soon to be Australia with a lot of their offshore production facilities. So you're going to see a lot of production coming on globally, but as far as domestically, we're about to start exporting up to 20% of our current domestic demand. Um, that starts in 2015 with Chenier Energy. The next um, well, we're already exporting a little bit, but these are to non-free trade agreement countries, com- countries that are chomping at the bit for our natural gas because Japan, Korea, some places in Europe are paying 3 to 4x what we, uh, we currently pay in the United States uh, per million BTU is what the traditional metric is. is. Um, so we're, we're around $4. They're up 16 to $20 per million BTU. So they're ready to buy this. South Korea, Japan are two of the biggest buyers. And so 2015, Chenier Energy starts to export. Then 2017, 2018, you're really going to start to see a lot of exportation come out of the country. So um, I think you're maybe a year or two away from prices becoming more um, viable for producers to start generating more production. You've seen a lot of them pull back, but companies like a Southwestern Energy or uh, Ultra Petroleum and the Marcellus Shale, those are two of the cheapest uh, cost producers in the business. So if you if you have a buy and hold approach, you could you could argue that you could go ahead and buy into these companies and just wait for the upside because the demand for natural gas and the direction that countries that are shunning nuclear fuel, shunning coal-powered power plants, um, natural gas is that next step for them because solar, while it is really catching fire, the growth rates that we're seeing are starting from a very small base. So they've got a long way to come to really make a meaningful impact on our total energy infrastructure. Natural gas is that is going to be that segue. And um, so I think you could start to see 2015, 2016 um, prices to be more competitive for the companies. Unfortunately, for, for us powering our homes, we'll probably be paying a little bit more. But um, hopefully, th- exportations will be uh, limited so that we don't have to you know, pay the $15, $16 that we're seeing in, in South Korea and other Asian nations. I think it was a year ago this month that Aubrey McClendon stepped down at Chesapeake Energy. Yeah, April 1st was his... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know I miss him because, <laughs> holy cow... Good storylines. Holy cow, did we have a lot of fun talking about that guy. But where is Chesapeake Energy now, one year later? For a while, the thesis, part of the thesis mm-hmm. on Chesapeake Energy was, gosh, if they could ever get Aubrey McClendon to leave, this is a stock that could really be worth something. Has it played out that way? So far, so good for the company. They've been cutting expenditures. Basically, he went out and- They're not spending millions on antique maps anymore? No, not anymore. And they're not- Well, the funny thing about that is is they bought them from Aubrey McClendon because he was in such a pinch. And then once he once the stock rose back up and he, he felt good about himself again, he bought the maps back. So it was basically just a pawn shop for some of his, his personal belongings. Um, 
But yeah, you look at this company, they're recovering from the billions that he went out and spent on leaseholds all around the country because he wanted to He wanted to be an ExxonMobil of natural gas. They had um, energy services uh, portion of it, which they have since decided to sell off. Um, they have the production side, and they were trying to get into the downstream side. But the new CEO and management team, they really cleaned house. They cut... Uh, maybe 30, 40% of their workforce, and they're trimming a lot of their assets. So they're focusing more on oil, which is a lot more profitable these days. So they're kind of shifting away, but they still have a nice hedge in both directions and and great assets. Uh, They're really kind of concentrating on the new Utica, which is in Ohio and western Pennsylvania, supposedly the next big thing in natural gas and natural gas liquids. And they have some great assets along the Gulf Coast. So um, investors could could feel a lot more secure in, in buying into this company. That being said, he is still tied to the company because he does still own interest in the majority of the acreage or wells that are, are currently being drilled and have been drilled. So um, they still owe him money, and he still owes them money. So it's a partnership that could go on for the next 20, 25 years. Granted, not as impactfully as it was when he was CEO. Well, the NBA playoffs are coming up, and yeah. he owns Oklahoma City Thunder, so maybe he'll be distracted for a little while. Well, he's got his new venture, and he's got some backers, the likes of uh, some former Exxon and, uh, executives and some private equity shops, and he himself is buying back into the Utica Shale. So uh, he obviously still believes in it, and, and I think that bodes well for current Chesapeake investors. Let's wrap up with earnings season. Yep. It just formally kicked off last week. What is one or two energy companies that you're particularly curious to see how they do this quarter. And it can be because you think they really need a hit. Mm -hmm. You're dying to hear what the CEO has to say about uh, X, Y, or Z on the conference call. Who are you most interested to watch? So I I talked about not really being interested or understanding utilities for the most part, but one utility that's piqued my interest lately is NRG Energy. That's the letter N, the letter R, the letter G, Energy, ticker NRG. And um, this has been a coal-producing utility for a long time, but kind of visionary for a CEO right now coming out and saying that you know he's he's not anti wind he's not anti coal he's not anti natural gas but he's anti bs and so he's coming out and saying that all these companies that want subsidies for their own individual uh, power options they just need to get their act together and go out and do it and and he's taking nrg in a in a direction that i think is going to be way more renewable he's uh, they bought a uh, underperforming coal plants in illinois but i think they're just preparing to um have that base right now so that they can then launch into solar and wind. And I think that that's going to be an interesting play. And so that's one country or company that I'm personally trying to learn more about. But one company that I do know a lot about is EOG Resources. I mentioned them earlier in the show. I think one of the predominant exploration and production companies in the U.S., and investors can learn a lot from this company. Uh, and they report, I'm not sure of the exact date, NRG reports May 6th. I'm not sure of the exact date for EOG, but um, this is a company that has really been outperforming the industry. If I just saw a study from Deloitte polled 13 major CFOs from energy companies, and they actually have a pretty downbeat expectation for this coming quarter. They have the lowest expectation for earnings growth of only 4% of all major sectors in the U.S., and the second lowest for a revenue growth of about 1.9%. The only industry below that was tech and entertainment and media. So 
I think EOG is going to be well above those benchmarks, and I think that they're in the strongest plays with the EOG in the Eagle Ford, and they also have some assets in the Bakken, which are the two biggest plays going right now. Next to the Permian Basin in Texas could be could be lumped into that as well, but they've got rail infrastructure, they've got great proximity to the Gulf, and uh, like I said, management has been very fluid in their decision-making and really positioned this company well. All right, Taylor Markerman, thanks for being here. No problem. Thanks a lot, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Bradley Evans. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.